Father, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Father, we have just prayed and committed ourselves that we will keep your word forever. And so now as we come to your word today, Father, may what we have sung not just simply be words on a screen or words on a page, but may they truly be the desire of our hearts. And Father, we readily admit that left to ourselves, we would never desire your word. It would never be the desire of our hearts. And so, Father, we need your grace. We need your work within us to conform us more to these words today. Father, take your word and apply it to each and every individual heart here today. Lord, may we recognize that what we do now is an opportunity to hear from the creator of the universe that you speak to us through your word. So, Lord, as we come before your presence, as Christ is at your right hand on our behalf, speak, Lord, to us. May we be changed by the power of your word. We pray all this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11 again. There's a lot here in verses 5 through 11. I uh, I finished so so Two weeks ago, when I was studying and getting things ready, I realized there's no way we're going to get past verse 5, essentially. Uh, and so I, I recognized that, so I prepared the notes. And, and then this week I thought, I'm going to get through verses 6 through 11 in one Sunday. And then I quickly realized that's not going to happen. So this is part 2. There's going to be a part 3 as well as we look at uh, what Peter has for us. As he, again, focusing on what he is calling us to do, he, show, he shows us, First Peter tells us that we're pilgrims. It speaks of how we live as pilgrims in this world. Second Peter now, Peter is calling us to recognize how we find the power to live as pilgrims in this world. We live in a world that is hostile. We live in a world that is turned away from us. We live in a world that wants us essentially to go away. And so as we face persecution, as we face authorities to whom we are commanded to submit that run roughshod over us, that, that don't do what we want to do, how do we find the strength to follow the path of a pilgrim? And this is why Peter tells us again in verse 3 of, ch- of chapter 1 that it is through the divine power of God granting us all things through the knowledge of Him, through the knowledge of Christ. And so we're looking at how we have power for pilgrims in the knowledge of Christ. And so we looked at and began looking at last week, particularly in verses 5 through 11, how we are called to walk in freedom. So we are freed from the corruption that is in the world. We saw that in in verse 4. So now look with me in verse 5. We're going to read verses 5 through 11, and then the the majority of our time is going to be focused at the end of verse 5 and through verse 7. So Paul write, or Peter writes, verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So last week, we talked about the condition of freedom that we have. And we looked back at verse 4, that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world that exists because of sinful desires. That if we are to live for Christ, we must be freed from that which is antithetical to Christ. And that freedom comes through the salvation we have in Christ, His work on our behalf, that then frees us to not be enslaved to these sinful desires that cause the corruption that we see in the world today. And then he calls us then to make every effort to supplement. And so as we are freed from these corrupt desires, that freedom drives us to be intense, to be zealous, that was the word we used, in our pursuit of godliness. We don't haphazardly look at the Christian life. We don't say, oh, I'll, I'll get to it when I can. It is that which consumes who we are. We are zealous for these things. And that is why we labor intensely, make every effort to supplement. So we saw that this is the condition of freedom. And we talked about that last week. This week, we're going to look now at the path of freedom. What does it look like? To walk in freedom. What we have to understand is that this freedom that we have that causes us to zealously and lavishly supplement what God has done, Peter now says, okay, this is what it looks like. And he gives us what has been described as a chain of eight virtues that are to be exhibited in the life of the believer. He arranges these two virtues in two main headings. We're to pursue or, or seek to supplement or make every effort to have inward characteristics within us. And those inward characteristics are then going to produce outward actions. So as we see throughout the Scriptures, Christ, God, calls us for inward transformation that changes the way that we act outwardly. Now, these are all chained together. They're linked together. And that means that it's not that we have the opportunity to say, well, I'm going to pick and choose some of these or others of these. They are all to be in, in, exhibited in our lives. They're all to be working in us. It's also important to note how Peter begins and ends these things. He speaks, first of all, as we're supplementing our faith. Faith is the first Virtue here. And then he ends with love. Faith and love. The Apostle Paul tells us that this is the focus. This is one way, if we were to sum up what the Christian life is, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he tells us, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. This is what counts. Faith working through what? Love. Now it's interesting, in Paul's Discussion here in Galatians 5, he's talking about the Judaizers, those that are legalistically imposing these these rules upon believers and saying that it's not enough to believe in Christ, but you also have to be circumcised in order to truly be right with God. And Paul, in rebuking that, says, look, if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, what does it look like? You believe and you love. And in fact, your belief works its way out in your love. And this is exactly what Peter points us to. He connects faith and love with the chain of these virtues that he points us to here. So, I want us to look today at this path of freedom. I think one way to think about it from a practical standpoint is to think about a diamond. How do you know that a diamond is real? You know, I I remember when I was buying a a diamond for my wife. I know we talked recently about how cool the box was, and it lit up all these different things and that type of thing. But, you know, I I went to a site. Again, she doesn't like me to tell this, but I went to this site called DirtCheapDiamonds.com. So there maybe was some question as to whether or not there was authenticity to the diamond I got. But I went to a jeweler, and the jeweler authenticated the diamond. He was, yes, this is a real diamond. Whew, that was all right. So, so what is it that, that authenticates the diamond? That may, and what we, we realize that there's facets. There's, there's different ways that, that the light bounces off of it. 
There are different characteristics that a diamond has that shows that it's a diamond. Now, here's the thing we have to recognize. Those characteristics are not what make it the diamond. What makes it the diamond are the ages of pressure placed upon carbon that creates that diamond. That's what makes the diamond. The diamond exhibits who it, what it is by the facets and the different characteristics it has. And so we have to keep this reality in mind in the way that we look at the commands in Scripture that we're to live out. Do we make ourselves Christians by our good works? No. That is solely and completely the work of God's grace. However, we show that we are Christians by our work. And this is, in fact, what Peter is going to take up. And even in the later verses that we'll look at next week, he points us to that reality. So if we are truly God's people, what does it look like? And it begins with inward transformation that creates outward transformation. So let's look, first of all, at the call to pursue inward transformation. Now, again, we have eight of these different links in the chain that... Uh, Peter is going to point us to. And the first one that we see is faith. Now, he speaks of faith, first of all, and he actually speaks of us supplementing our faith because this is the very thing that brings us freedom. It is faith. Now, we've already seen this. This is something that is granted to us by God's sovereign grace. If we look up in verse 1 of 2 Peter, we have obtained a faith. It is something that is given to us. We'll look later on, I believe next week, in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that faith is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But I feel like sometimes we get this idea that faith is a one-time event that gives us a ticket to heaven and then... It has nothing, rest, nothing else to do with our lives as Christians. And that is so far from the reality that the Scriptures tell us. You don't walk an aisle or pray a prayer or exercise faith and then that's it. You don't have to believe anymore. Rather, we're called here to live a life of faith. We walk by faith. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. We do not walk by what? Now, this, this passage, we know this one very well, and yet it would do a world of good for us if we were to truly take its truths and let it impact us. Because what do we tend to so often walk by? Sight. Seems like we focus on the things that we see in this world when God is calling us to focus on His Son and the faith that brings about transformation in us. We are to walk in faith. We're to walk as our Savior walked. So we see what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. When Christ was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. How was He able to do that? Because His focus was not on what He saw. His focus was on His God. Instead of doing those things, instead of reacting to what He saw, what did He instead do? He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Reality of the Christian life is that every moment must be lived by faith. Anything done apart from faith, the Scripture tells us, is sin. We have to live by faith. Constantly and completely trusting and resting in who Christ is and what He's done for us. Recognizing, and this is important that he begins with this, because everything else that we're going to seek to have in action in our lives, it's produced by faith. It's God working in us. Now, we truly do these things, But it begins with faith. If we don't have faith, there's no Christian life at all. And so we begin this inward transformation by living by faith. Then we see the second one given here. So as we supplement our faith, 
We supplement faith with virtue. Virtue, or as I'm going to call it here, moral excellence. Now what this really shows us is that faith in Christ produces likeness to Christ. Faith in Christ produces likeness to Christ. The word that we see used here for virtue in verse 5, supplementing our faith with virtue, is the same word that's used for excellence in verse 3. Look look up with me just a few verses to verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, that being Christ. What has Christ done? He's called us to His own glory and excellence. The same word that is used here in verse 5 for virtue, moral excellence. The word is used in Greek literature to refer to that which is outstanding of, of, or of moral value. Now, this is remarkable here, that as we have been freed from these sinful desires that bring about corruption, we now are freed to pursue true moral excellence. Moral excellence that conforms to the image of who Christ is. Again, we looked at a couple weeks ago that we are able to become partakers of the divine nature. The Scriptures say things sometimes that if they weren't in Scripture, we would think, how can that be possible? How is it that we partake of the divine nature? Well, we supplement our faith with seeking to be like Jesus, seeking His moral excellence. We have to recognize that by virtue of our partaking of this nature, if Paul says we have partaken of the divine nature, then that partaking is going to change the way that we see our lives and the way that we seek to live. It's going to produce moral excellence. And we, we love to talk about justification by faith alone. That is a declaration that we are righteous. Right? God has done this. In Christ, we are declared righteous. By faith in Christ, God looks at us and says, you're just as righteous as my son. Not because we are righteous, but because Christ has exchanged his righteousness for our sin, killing our sin on the cross and rising to new life. This is his work. But we also have to recognize that we're not just declared righteous. We're not merely declared righteous. We are called to be righteous. I think we miss that in churches that focus on the sovereign act of God in saving us. He also saved us so that we would be righteous. We're freed to act righteously. So when we talk about faith bringing justification Faith also will always, true faith will also always bring about transformation. We desire the moral excellence of Christ. We seek to work righteously as He did. And praise God, we are freed to do so. Now what this focuses on is the motivations of your life. Who Do you want to be like? I remember growing up, there was the the statement that they would say, be like Mike, Michael Jordan. All right, I'm a short, pudgy, white guy. I'm not going to be like Mike. No matter how hard I tried, I don't have the ingredients Do you realize what Peter is saying here? He's saying that the freedom that you have in Christ, the grace of God that has saved you, it provides you with the ingredients to be like Christ. That you can pursue that moral excellence. When we look and read of Christ's life in the Gospels, we we read, even as Peter said, that when he was reviled, he did not revile. When he was persecuted, he didn't threaten back. And maybe you look at your own life and you think about, well, if someone treated me this way or so-and-so did this to me me, and I'm going to get them back. If you're in Christ, you don't have to respond that way. You're freed. You're freed from those sinful desires that only bring about corruption. 
So when we read the Gospels, we are reading what it means to pursue moral excellence, what that looks like to be like Christ. Is that who you want to be? Is Christ the goal and the focus of your life? I mean fully and completely, giving yourself over to this reality. What drives you? What is the inward focus of your heart? Peter tells us to supplement our faith with these moral excellencies, these virtues that can only be seen in Christ. How do I know that they can only be seen in Christ? Well, secondly, we see the third thing he points us to, and that is knowledge. We supplement our faith with virtue. We supplement our virtue with knowledge, this excellency that we seek. The question here is knowledge of what? What knowledge are we to be supplementing our faith with? and our virtues with, and that is that we are to zealously pursue the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Are you satisfied in your knowledge of Christ? Are you satisfied with where you are in knowing Him? Knowledge of Christ. This is our lifelong pursuit. Knowing Him passionately this we have to go back again to what peter said at the very beginning of verse five we're to make every effort are you making every effort to grow in your knowledge of christ or are your efforts more focused at the knowledge of lesser things in fact this is what peter is going to end his book with this book second peter 2 Peter 3, 18, we're to grow in grace and what? Knowledge of who? Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, if we want to know what it means or how we can be more passionate, more, more energized, more focused in our worship, it is by knowing Jesus more that we become more focused in our worship. <laughs> because Peter's response here is that as we grow in that grace, to Him... Be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. In fact, this knowledge of Christ is the very definition of eternal life. This is eternal life. (coughs) That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Listen, we, we all like to hear the promises of eternal life. We all, want, we all love to, to hear about the eternal state and those things. But he, here's the reality that Jesus is saying in John 17 that Peter is reminding us of. That you possess eternal life now. And that your possession of that eternal life is a pursuit of knowing Christ. Something that you could not do before you were freed. Apart from Christ, there's only one thing you ever know. Sin and judgment. In Christ, you know Christ all the more and you enjoy eternal life now. You want to know what eternity is going to be like? You want to know what eternal life will be in heaven? Growth in the knowledge of Christ. I've said this before. God is infinite. And to know an infinite being takes an infinite amount of time. And we can begin pursuing that now. In fact, Peter is telling us that if we are truly God's people, we will be pursuing it. We'll be supplementing our faith and our moral excellence with knowledge of Christ. And we see how this now, the chain begins to strengthen itself. Because the more we know Christ, the more we know His moral excellence, which then causes us then to pursue that moral excellence all the more. As faith points us to seeking to be like Christ, and as we know Christ more, then this produces self-control. And this becomes sort of the transition between the inward and outward manifestations and these virtues. Again, look in verse 5. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, 
And knowledge is then supplemented with self-control. Knowledge brings about self-control. The word refers to restraint of one's impulses. <coughs> Excuse me. This is an inward recognition of our freedom that produces an outward control of our actions. So this is really the transition, inward and outward. We have to recognize that we are freed from sin. So we must, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what does that do? It allows us to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies, to make us obey its passions. The implication of what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 6 is that if we are dead to God and alive to sin, what is the only thing that we're going to pursue? Sinful passions. Have you looked at the world today? Headlong pursuit into sinful passions that only bring about corruption. It is amazing to me to see how the very fabric of society is unwinding because we are denying and allowing people to pursue sinful things at the most basic level of what it means to be a human. We're forbidding to protect women from men that are seeking to do terrible things at times. We're allowing these type of things, this sinful, this sinful desires to bring about corruption in the rest of society. And this is, Peter said it. I mean, thousands of years ago, Peter said it. Why is the world corrupted? Sinful desires. What does the world say? Let's continue to pursue sinful desires. And what do we see happening? More corruption. We have to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That reality is what's going to give us self-control. As Peter speaks in 1 Peter 1, 14-15, we are, as obedient children, as pilgrims, we are not conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. But instead, we're called to be holy because He is holy. And so because He is holy, we need to be holy in how much of our conduct? All of our conduct. Listen, the, the call that Peter is calling us to here, the, these virtues that work inwardly, they affect every aspect of who we are. Every aspect. From what you do in the morning when you first get up, to the thoughts of your mind, to the way you interact with coworkers and friends and family and beyond. It's comprehensive. So we're to be holy in all of our conduct. How do we do that? We're not conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. Again, faith brings about Virtue or moral excellence. Moral excellence is pursued through knowledge of Christ, and knowledge of Christ then produces self-control. Again, the holiness that we seek to exhibit comes because we know the Holy One. And in fact, it becomes something that Peter's going to point to later in chapter 2, that how do we recognize false teaching? Guess what false teaching doesn't do? It doesn't control our passions. If we look in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, speaking of false teachers, they promise people freedom. But they, these teachers themselves, are slaves of what? Corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. One way that God gives us to judge whether or not teaching is in accordance with God's Word, is does that teaching transform our actions? Does it produce control? Or does it promise freedom that only brings about destruction? 
So these are these inward virtues that we're to have. The chain begins in our hearts. Faith in Christ. Pursuing then moral excellence as we know Him more, which then controls our actions. Well, now what does that control of our actions look like? And that's where we see we're called to pursue outward transformation. What does it look like to have these virtues in effect? And it begins, first of all, with steadfastness. Notice again what he says here. As we supplement virtue with knowledge, verse 6, knowledge with self-control, self-control is supplemented then with steadfastness. So as the link of the chain continues, the next link that um, that self-control is connected to is steadfastness. Now, what we have to recognize is it's not enough to be self-controlled once. You know, and praise the Lord when we do have victory over sin, but that is one time where we don't go headlong into sin is not what true virtues of Christ at work within us produces. Rather, it becomes the course of life for the believer steadfastness. The term here literally means hyper-remaining. Hyper-remaining. That we are, we are chained to this way of living. Now, we're to continue, first of all, in what we've learned. Same word is used here in 2 Timothy 3.14. Continue or hyper-remain in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Timothy, or Paul is telling Timothy here, look, if you're going to live these things, if you're going to be steadfast, it has to be chained back to those internal aspects. But then as we do that, we, we remain steadfast. Even in the midst of immense opposition, we remain steadfast steadfast this is all over the scriptures colossians chapter 1 verse 11 we are strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that we might have all what endurance and then we're patient with joy now i know we're preaching on second peter but let me just say for a second how many of you look at patience as a way to find joy most of us are like Patience requires me to get frustrated. And yet here we see Paul telling the believers at Colossae, look, if the power of God is in you, and Peter is pointing us to that power that comes to the knowledge of Christ, then we will endure and we will be patient and we will rejoice in it. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, we know this one. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, the saints that have gone on before us. So we put aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And then as we've done that, which again, taking us back to what we looked at before, self-control, turning those things aside, we run with what? Endurance, steadfastness, the race that is set before us. James speaks of this. Who are the blessed ones? The blessed ones, according to James, are those who remained steadfast. And then he talks about a great example of steadfastness. Job. How many of you would like to live Job's life? I mean, it was, it was terrible. He lost everything from a human, natural viewpoint. And what was his response? The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. I'm going to bless the name of the Lord. Where does that steadfastness come from? It comes from someone who is walking by faith, not by sight. And who recognizes that the purpose of God in all those things is to display His compassion and His mercy. We even see this in Christ's word to the churches in Revelation. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. 
and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for many, for uh, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This is, this is New Testament evidence of what, what the Christian life is to be about. We are steadfast. We hold firm to the truth of God's Word. We're to be steadfast. Now here's the reality that I think is so missing in many Christians' lives. We are so easily not steadfast. What are the things that distract you from your pursuit of the knowledge of God? The trivialities of your life, the tyranny of the urgent. That's something that we talked about in our men's Bible study before. Everything has to be done now. The leisure of this world that we live in, the entertainment-mindedness of where we are. Those things come in and we give up time with Christ. We give up time with His people to pursue those other things. We're not steadfast. And I truly wonder what would happen to the church if persecution were to truly come here today. Would you be here today if you could have been shot for being here? Or, I think maybe even more difficult, would you be here today if there was an IRS agent at the door and As you came in, he took your social security number and he took half of your money. Would you be here today? This was the type of things that the believers that Peter is writing to were facing. And he is telling them, he's calling them to radical, hyper-remaining steadfastness. That steadfastness then produces godliness. Look with me in verse 6, at the end of verse 6. As we have knowledge with self-control, we supplement self-control with steadfastness. We supplement steadfastness with godliness. The steadfastness which is seen in our outward patience as we struggle in this world gives way to a way of life that is in conformity to who God is. It is godliness. This is the outward practice of becoming a partaker of the divine nature. Obeying God's law cheerfully and from the heart. You see, when, when Peter says that we're freed from sinful desires that bring about corruption, that means we're freed from those things. And godliness is the pursuit of who God is and the exclusion of those other things from our lives because our great joy is to know Him more. Where we struggle is that we get mixed up in our minds and we make our great joy the pursuit of these pleasures that bring about corruption. And so true godliness is not a down-in-the-mouth, Ho-hum, I can't do X, Y, and Z way of life. Again, we, we've started this study on Wednesdays in the, with the Puritans. And one of the misnomers of the Puritans is that they live joyless lives. And we, we look at them, they used to dress up in weird, you know, black hats and weird ties and stuff like that. We, we'll read things in the Puritans that they'll, they had some very strict rules at times for their families. And we look at that and, and we're like, man, like they, they wouldn't allow sport to happen on Sundays. I, my, my, on Sundays in, in the fall and in the winter, I've got to watch my Steelers. And we, we look at those type of things and, and we see them as like they're, they're joy killers. We feel like they're sucking the joy out of life. But the reality is the Puritans were the most joyful people on the face of the earth at that time because God was their great joy. God was greater than any Steelers game to them, although they didn't have the Steelers back then. Knowing God was the great pursuit of their lives. 
And so a way of godliness, a way that, that turns away from sin, doesn't say, I'm not able to enjoy these things. Rather, it says, by God's grace, I'm able to enjoy God, and He is better. He's better than any sinful desire that you can seek to satisfy. He's better than any drug. He's better than any pleasure. He's better than anything this world has to offer. And so we're to pursue godliness. The way of our lives must be like the way of Christ. So steadfastness and godliness, which then gives way, thirdly, to brotherly affection. Now it's interesting here that Peter does not launch into a list of things we're not to do. Now, that's sometimes appropriate. We see Paul doing that. Tells us what the works of the flesh are and then names specific sins that we're to avoid. And then he gives us what the fruit of the Spirit is and tells us what those virtues are. Here, Peter tells us sort of generalities of our lives, and that begins with brotherly affection. This is a word that you probably all are very familiar with. There's a city on the other side of the state that bears this word, Philadelphia. We're to have Philadelphia towards each other. And as much as I love Pittsburgh, there was no Pittsburghomai in the Greek language. So Philadelphia. Tom Schreiner, a commentator, notes that this combined with the last one, which is love, provides the supreme evidence that one is a believer. Philadelphia speaks of family devotion and love. Again, throughout the Scriptures, the apostles would refer to their readers as brothers or brothers and sisters. He's recalling this family aspect. God is our Father, Christ is our elder brother, and in Him we are all united by the Spirit. We're family. And so we're to pursue this brotherly love. We're to have affection for each other. We're bonded together by the Spirit and united to Christ. I mean, this is one of the main ways we display to the world that we are Christ's disciples. What does Jesus say in John 13, 35? How will all people know that we are His disciples? If you have the right whatever type of music, type of translation. If you have the right way of life, the, the right, well, the way, right way of life is right, but the right rules. It's not focused on these externals. Rather, he says, how do people know that you're my disciples if you love one another? Now, here's the thing. We have to recognize how transformative that is in the world in which we live today. There is no other organization, there is no other place where people from all sorts of diverse backgrounds with all sorts of different diverse ideas can come together and love each other. We look for it in all sorts of different ways, all right? Let's say you're a member of a country club. You know what's going to happen in the country club? You're going to complain about so-and-so who doesn't clean off this or such-and-such who takes my tea time or so-and-so who messing with the bylaws of the, of the thing. What about political parties? There's not a lot of Philadelphia in political parties, is there? No, there's only one place that exhibits true concern for other people, and that is in the church because the church has been radically transformed by God's grace. So we supplement our faith with brotherly love. We supplement our our godliness and our steadfastness. What does godliness lead to? Love and affection for each other. Do you love the people that God has joined you together with here at Bible Baptist? You know one way you show that? You show up here. We need each other. You realize God gives giftedness to you so that you can help those in need in this congregation. We need each other. 
And so we've got to show that brotherly love. And it is a virtue that we pursue zealously. 1 John 3.11, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, let us not forget this, this love is defined. It's not some sort of flippy-floppy love in general for mankind. Rather, it's talking to the love that we have bound by Christ in the Spirit. And this is the message from the beginning. Which then brings about the final thing. We've moved from brotherly affection to then just having the overall aspect of love. What's interesting is that this list that Peter gives here is often compared to the lists given by Greek philosophers and particularly Gnostic philosophers. And actually, every one of these at some point or another can be found in a Gnostic list of what it means to be a good human being, according to the Greeks, according to the ancients. Except for love. This one does not exist in those viewpoints. This love is the goal of our knowledge of Christ The aim of our charge is what? Love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Listen, Peter is not some radical, liberal theologian. We often like to think about, particularly in conservative Christian circles, all love is this flippy floppy. I don't know why I'm using flippy floppy today, but anyways... Love is this flippy-floppy idea that we just sort of accept everybody. And, and we get this sort of idea that we're negatively attuned to love. Listen, it's all over the New Testament. This is the aim of what Paul was charging Timothy with. Love. Now, this love is, is defined. It's a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's a love that stands for what is right, but it is still love. This is the love that establishes and fuels holiness. Look at what Paul says to the Thessalonians. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that, this is amazing, we're to abound in love and that abounding in love that God is working within us has a purpose so that we can be established And our hearts are blameless in holiness. You see how that chain begins to move back on itself? And how love is that which establishes us. Love is that which pursues godliness and steadfastness. Before our God and the Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. I think what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is this. We know this very well. There are three that remain, faith, hope, and love. These abide, these three. But the greatest of these is what? If you do not have love, you do not have Christ. I think that's what is being argued here. If you do not have love, you do not have Christ. This is the final link in the chain. Supreme love for God, sacrificial love for our neighbor. What are the greatest commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, where are you this morning? We need to look inward first of all. Are you still a slave to sin or have you been freed from the sin and the corruption in the world? If you are freed, are you zealous for good works? Are you making every effort 
to have these eight virtues in effect within you. It is God's grace that has freed you. It is your responsibility to pursue them. Make every effort. Be zealous. Are you working to be transformed by these virtues? Are you inwardly seeking to grow your faith, to live out the moral excellence that Christ has? That you are justified to live righteously? Do you seek zealously with a fervor to know Christ more? Are you wanting to be more conformed into His image and is that producing self-control so that you're not running full bore into sinful actions but that you're seeking to be like Jesus? And is this inward transformation evident in your outward actions? Are you steadfast or do you fold the minute something comes in that brings difficulty? Does your life exhibit godliness? Are you loving the church? And are you a person that shows love? God is reminding us through Peter's pen that salvation, that redemption, is much more than freedom from God's wrath. It is freedom to live this way. In Christ, you are free to pursue with all your might conformity to Christ. Do it. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Come back next week. And we'll talk about how, what is the effect then of these things in our lives. How do we evaluate? We're commanded to have these virtues in our lives. Now, how do we know that they're truly there? And Peter points us to some very important things in verses 9 through 11. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth we find in it. We pray, Lord, that you would work in our midst by your spirit. Change us. Take your word. May we, may we meditate on these virtues, these eight essential virtues of what it is to be a Christian. Recognizing that having these virtues is not what makes us your children. You have made us our children. You, your children. You have freed us. But we are freed now to live these things in our hearts and in our actions. Father, work by your grace. We pray this.